So in the coming weeks, we're going to uh, come up with some more creative ways to uh, destroy Lazy Boy recliners. I know some of you ladies probably don't get this, but there's just something in a man's DNA that loves to think of ways to destroy stuff. And the louder and the bigger the bang, the more we like it. And uh, so in the coming weeks, we've got some more things that uh, make this week uh, look pretty calm. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I like a nice, lazy boy recliner. Uh, we, had, we didn't ever have a recliner until about five or six years ago. Renee, she didn't even tell me. She just went out and bought a recliner. And boy, and it's a lazy boy recliner. And you talk about a great place to sit while you're watching a football game or, or studying or reading or whatever. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic. How many of y'all have a, a, some kind of recliner in your house? Just stick your hand out. Yeah, quite, quite a few people. You know, I'm one of those people that, that I don't need a whole lot in the house. I mean, I need a big garage. Like, if I had a 2,000-square-foot garage with, like, five doors, that would be great in a 1,000-square-foot in a house. That, that'd be okay with that. My wife, not so much, and I don't have one that big. But, you know, a nice garage, uh, a lazy boy recliner, and the other thing I really enjoy is an ice maker. Just a good ice maker that makes plenty of ice. After that, you know, she can pretty much do whatever she wants with the house. I am pretty well good to go. But in this series, I'm going to call for men to stand up, to get out of their lazy boys, so to speak, if, if you haven't quite caught on to that uh, metaphor today. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of us, for a lot of us men. We like a good lazy boy, and it's called a lazy boy for a reason. They don't have lazy girl recliners. You know, I, I was thinking about this week. Can you imagine in today's political climate, if you were to start up a company, lazy girls or lazy women recliners? Can you imagine how fast that would go viral? Can you imagine how much trouble I would be in if I was to start a company like that or to suggest those kind of things? But yet, if you say lazy boy recliner, everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, I kind of get that. Yeah, I, I can see where that's coming from. And so in this series, I'm going to directly challenge the men. I'm just going to be upfront with you. I'm going to directly challenge the men. That doesn't mean there's not going to be any applications for the women, but I am challenging the men. And one of the reasons for that is when you're speaking, if you don't make it clear to the men that you're talking to them, they always think you're talking to somebody else. I'm, I'm serious about that. That's the way guys are wired. They think the message is not for them. I was reading a book. It's by uh, uh, Anson Dorrance, and he is the uh, University of North Carolina soccer coach. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about him, he's won 21 national championships, which that's pretty cool all by itself. But he's one of the few, well, hey, actually, he's the only one that has ever coached men's and women's teams at the same time at the Division I level and won a championship the same year. So he kind of holds that distinction all by himself. And so he's talked in the past about, well, what's the difference between coaching a women's team and a men's team? And he says, well, when you're coaching men's teams, he said he learned pretty early on that 
You know, you have to yell at the men and you have to kick things. And like the louder you yell and the harder you kick things, that the better they respond. But he said, women are totally different. He said, with the men, I would have them take a knee. And then he said, I would just yell at them and kick water coolers and drop kick water bottles and stuff like that. But he said, with the women, he said, I take a knee. And he said, I speak very calmly to them. And, and talk with them that way. And he put it this way. He said, the women needed to feel trusted, but the men needed to feel threatened. The women, he went on, needed to be encouraged, but the men needed to be challenged. And he said, when I was talking to the men, he said, I would have to show them videotaped evidence of what I was talking about, or they would think I was talking about one of their teammates. They would never assume I was talking about them. So he said, I'd have to call them out. Smith, you missed your defensive assignment. John, why were you so out of position? He said, if I didn't call them by name, they would just assume I was talking about one of their teammates. But he said, the women, it was totally different. He said, if I would just make general observations, he said, every one of them would think I was talking about them. He said every one of them would think that. They would take it personally. So the men would think somebody else and the women would think, okay, this is directed at me. So having said that, I think if I didn't specifically mention this morning that I was talking to the men, the women would think, oh, he's talking to me. And the men would think the same thing. That I was talking to their, their, to their wives. So I just want to be clear that I'm talking to you, not as boys, but I'm talking to the men. Not boys, but men. You know, over in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about men who act like boys. Even though they've gone through puberty and they might have beards, that doesn't make you a man. Paul talks about that kind of stuff. And there are a lot of boys in our culture who have beards. Boys who stay up at late at night playing with their video games while their wives go to bed by themselves. Boys who binge watch Netflix while their kids put themselves to bed. Boys who are too busy with their hobbies to pay attention to the widow or their single mom down the street that needs some help with her lawn. Boys who work hard for their toys, but they really don't have much purpose with their life. And they're not being very intentional with their money and the way they spend their time. Boys who whine and complain about not being appreciated and not having their needs met. When in reality, God calls men to a life of sacrifice and service. Boys who look at women as objects for pleasure rather than as daughters of God who are worthy of respect and honor. Boys who use Twitter and social media to throw childish fits and call people names who disagree with them. And boys that you have to handle with kid gloves because their egos are so fragile. There are a lot of boys with beards. So just full disclosure, men, I'm talking to you as men and I'm talking to myself too. I'm not standing up here and saying I've got this whole thing figured out. But I want you to know I'm talking to us. And there's not going to be any carnations in the lobby when we get done today. I am talking to the guys. And one of the other reasons I want specifically to talk to men is because I think there's a whole lot of confusion out there. 
I think there's a lot of confusion about masculinity. If you went online, try this, not now on your phones, but later, type in the word masculinity, and there's a particular adjective that often shows up in front of that word. Do you know what that is? Anybody want to guess? Fragile. Fragile, that's a good guess, but that's not it. That's a really good guess. No? Good guess, too. Toxic. Toxic masculinity. That anytime you Google masculinity, if you, if you put it up there a second, it'll show the word toxic, toxic masculinity. And while I can't argue that there's a lot of things that get paraded as masculinity in our culture today that is pretty toxic, the response that seems to be our culture's response is, well, we just need to get rid of masculinity altogether. Let's just have one big unisex culture. I don't think that's what God wants. And I don't think most women want that either. But I think we need to have a biblical understanding of what it means to be a man. So I just kind of want us to talk through some of that together. What does it mean to be a man in today's world? How do we stand up and honor God and honor our daughters and our, the women in our lives? And so here's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to go back to the very first man. In weeks to come, we're going to look at Joshua and some other characters. But we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we're going to start out looking at Adam. First man mentioned in Scripture. And in Genesis chapter 3, I think he struggles with something that is a challenge for a lot of men. So chapter 3 begins with Satan, who is a serpent. He's tempting Adam and Eve to do something that God has forbidden them to do in chapter 2. You'll remember the story, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. All the scriptures will be on the screen behind me. But it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly Die. So here's the first thing I want you to notice this morning. Point number one. Adam is the one who is going to be held responsible. He comes to Adam. He commanded the man here. Do not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And so then we get to chapter three. And we read in verse six that Satan, who has taken this form of a serpent or a snake, comes and tempts Eve. And he says... When the woman saw, verse 6, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. And so when Eve takes this bite of fruit, sin enters the world, or so it seems. But yet if you go over to the New Testament... And you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says that sin entered the world through one man, and the context here is the man Adam. So wait, Eve or Adam? I mean, it seems like it's Eve, right? She's the one that ate the fruit first. I don't want to make a big deal of this since I'm a guy, but it seems to me like it, it was Eve, right? She took it first. So what is the New Testament talking about? How is it that sin entered the world through Adam? Well, there's a phrase in verse 6 that I think kind of helps us get our arms around this that I think sometimes we overlook. It says, she, referring to Eve, also gave some to her husband 
who was with her. So you get the scene here? Satan, in the form of a serpent, begins to speak to Eve. And he begins to tell her lies about God. And God didn't mean that about the, that tree. And, you know, that kind of stuff doesn't apply. You know, you don't worry about this. And so this whole scene is taking place. And it's his wife. It's his wife. And the serpent is lying to Adam's wife. And he is just, what? Standing there. He was with her, but he does nothing. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He just stands there. And perhaps this is the first sin of man, the sin of passivity, the sin of doing nothing. That's the second point this morning. Adam does nothing. He is totally passive. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be said. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. And I think in Adam we find a struggle that is common to a lot of men, a challenge to a lot of men. They struggle with passivity where we fail to speak and we fail to act. And so the challenge for men this weekend, I want to challenge you this Sunday to stand up and have the courage and to do something. Stand up and say something. Stand up and do something. I'm guessing in a congregation this large, there's a lot of you that grew up with a man in your house where the story was like this. There was something that should have been said. There was something that should have been done. And there wasn't. You waited to hear him say things like, you're beautiful. You're God's daughter. You're smart. You're valuable. You are worthy. I love you. You are precious to me. But he didn't say that. You waited to hear him say, you've got what it takes. You're strong enough. You're a man after God's own heart. I believe in you. I'm proud of you. I can't wait to see what God's going to do in your life. But he never said that. And so in part, your story is marked by Adam's sin. Something should have been said. But wasn't. Something should have been done, but it wasn't. And you look up into the stands at the ball game. He said he'd be there, and he's not. And you fall asleep at night in your bed as a child, and he should have been kneeling there, and he wasn't. And you sit around the dinner table, and he's late again. He should have done something, but he didn't. That's what Adam did here. He should have done something. He should have said something, but he didn't. And you know, I like to think that part of the reason that he didn't, and I think this applies to us too, is because Adam didn't, I don't think he really grasped what was going on. He didn't realize that there was a fight for his marriage going on right there. He didn't realize that the enemy was actively engaging his wife right in front of his face and consequently, he didn't do anything about it. He didn't say anything. The Bible says that our, our warfare is against, not against flesh and blood, but it's against an enemy who has come, in John it says, to kill, steal, and destroy. And there's a battle taking place, and it's taking place right in front of Adam, and it's taken right in front of us, and nothing happens. I think most of you are probably familiar with the movie 
the Patriot. And Mel Gibson plays this character early in the movie who there's a war going on and he doesn't want to get involved because he's been in war and he knows how much it hurts and he knows the pain of war. So when the war starts, he doesn't participate. And eventually there's a scene in the movie where the war is literally, the battle is taking place in his front yard. He can sit on his porch and watch the battle taking place. And he become, begins to come, become convicted that he's not out there fighting. And the woman he loves, she comes up to him and she tries to reassure him. And she says, you have done nothing wrong. And then he says, I've done nothing. And that is wrong. Guys, there is a battle going on in our front yards, and we're not doing anything. And I see this strange contradiction in many of us as men. God wires men for action. He just does. There's that, that warrior spirit that God has put in every single man. Every man has that built into him. But we get too content sometimes just to sit back and watch the action from our recliner, so to speak. We'll sit there and we'll watch football games and we'll watch UFC fights or WWE or whatever it is and we like the action movies. We'll watch The Patriot. The Patriot and Mission Impossible and Black Hawk Down and Lone Survivor and James Bond movies. We'll watch all of that stuff and we'll see a man fight for something and bleed for something and sacrifice themselves for something and fight injustice. And there's something that comes alive in us while we're in the recliner. What's happening there? I think what's happening there is God has made us that way to fight and pursue and sacrifice and live passionate lives and be men of action. But Satan has other plans. And Satan knows that if he can neutralize the men, he's got a thing. Because if he neutralizes the men, he knows that most of the time the family will follow. And if he can neutralize the family, he can neutralize the community. If he neutralizes the community, he can neutralize the state, the country. And he's got a shot at the whole world. So what does he need to do to pull that off? He needs the men to do nothing. Just sit back in the recliners. And the man sits back and he flips through his newest sports package. And he doesn't even realize there's a serpent curling up around the footrest of his recliner. So how does Satan neutralize men today? I came across a really interesting book called The Demise of Guys. And this guy points out something I think is really fascinating. He talks about fake love and fake action. And what he's referring to is how many men are addicted to porn and video games. Now, he's not talking about the sin here. I mean, 
Porn is obviously immoral. There's nothing immoral about video games. So he's talking about the addiction, not the, the, not the actual sin. But he's kind of putting them together to make this point about fake love and fake action. And what he says is porn is basically fake love. It promises intimacy to a generation of young men. I don't know why he just points at young men because it's not just young men. But it promises intimacy, but it actually delivers the opposite. It drives men to isolation. It promises confidence and affirmation, but it delivers the opposite. It delivers self-hate and rejection and guilt. And what does it require of a man? Nothing. They don't have to pursue the heart of a woman. Doesn't take any courage. He doesn't have to fight for her honor or value her. He doesn't have to give of himself sacrificially. It offers this fake version of being a man and requires the man to do nothing, and it makes him think this is masculine. And then he points out the same thing about video games. He talks about a grown man who compulsively stares at a screen night after night playing battle games or war games. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. We're talking about an addiction here or doing it too much. And there is something in him that desperately wants a battle to fight because that's the way God created us, wants action. And video games offer a fake version of that. It doesn't require courage to play a video game. It's no danger involved, no sacrifice, no effort, no discipline. And it makes a man feel like a man even though it's fake and really he looks more like a boy and it requires nothing. And that's how Satan works. He holds up this fruit. He holds that up. And he promises something that doesn't deliver. And he makes a man feel like he's engaging in something. That's the sin of passivity. It's not so much what someone does or someone says, but what they don't do and don't say. And so Adam is kind of this stereotype here. And as you go through scripture, you see other people. I'll just share a couple other examples with you. We get to Genesis chapter 12 and you have Abraham. And God promises to make a great nation out of Abraham. But Sarah can't get pregnant. How's a great nation going to come out of this? And they try and they try and the years go by. And finally, Sarah says to, to her husband, hey, why don't you just go sleep with my handmaiden? Now at this point, wouldn't Abraham say no, honey? That's not what we're going to do. God has given us this promise and we're going to stay faithful. No, we're not going to do that. At this point, wouldn't you expect Abraham to say no? You're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We're going to wait on God. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say anything. And then eventually he does go sleep with the handmaiden. How about Joseph? You know, we talked about Joseph last week. I mean, we went through his whole life, right? But there's a verse I didn't talk to you about last week. Genesis chapter 37, verse 11. We all know that, that there was a problem that, that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the other brothers, and that created the jealousy. We talked about that last week. But in chapter 11, it says, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, and notice the phrase, and his father kept that matter in mind. Dad knows there's a problem. And what did he do? Nothing. We all know what happened in the rest of the story. His brothers sold him into slavery, and all those dominoes start falling. Nothing. Eli, the high priest, 
his sons are in the temple and they're stealing offerings and they're, they're sleeping with prostitutes at the temple. Eli knows there's a problem. And this is what it says in verse 13, chapter 3. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Eli did nothing. And there are plenty of other examples of marriages and families and even countries that fell because a man didn't say anything or do anything. I think sometimes we see this story, we see a family falling apart, and we think to ourselves, what happened here? Why, why is this happening? How did it come to this? And what you and I don't see is a long history of perhaps a husband or a father or a grandfather who didn't stand up and say something or do something. I think most of us have kind of, men have just kind of in our society have inherited this, this tendency toward passivity. I mean, you're like, well, how do you know this stuff, Dennis? Because I'm a man and I hang out with men. And you, and you see it all the time. It's a common struggle for men. And so we use the language of the lazy boy in this series. But here's something that's really interesting to me. The men in Scripture, they weren't lazy men that I just talked to you about. They were businessmen. Some of them were kings. They were priests. They were very successful. A lot of men who, who are lazy at home are very successful. Business people, lead companies, business owners. And yet they struggle in this area at home. And again, I came across a, a, another interesting book that I thought was really interesting. It's called Passive Men and Wild Women. Interesting name. And it's written by a psychiatrist in California. And a lot of his clients, the people that came to him, were women of high-powered executives. In other words, they lived in beautiful homes and stuff. Their husbands would go across the Golden Gate Bridge every day to work. They were CFOs, CEOs, successful business owners, corporate presidents, all those types of things. And he said what these men struggled with is things that pertain to relationships. They were, they were great in the business world, but when, it was, when relationships, a lot of times they struggled with that. And, and, and they couldn't navigate that channel, so to speak. And it created, so when they get home, then they would become passive. And he explains it this way. He said they would come home and often be inattentive and lethargic and withdrawn and distant. And he said the husband would communicate in a dozen ways. I'm tired. Leave me alone. He said the more requests she would make, the more he would ignore them. The louder she would become, he would retreat further. And he's talking in generalities here. She added more pressure. He lapsed into sullen silences. And as the husband withdrew and became more passive, she became more wild with frustration, bitterness, and anger which only fueled his passivity. And he went on to say the more that this happened, the more he would sense his own inadequacy when it come, comes to relationships and the more passive he would become. So can I talk to the ladies for just a minute? We'll come back to the men in a moment. But I know many of you have a man in your life and you would like to see him stand up and be the man that called that God has called him to be. In fact, I was doing some research for our men's group Wednesday night, and I came across a, another interesting statistic. Uh, 
Christian women today, they have a magazine and also a website, that their most read articles are always those that are for women to help their husband be the man that God wants him to be. Those are always the most read articles of any articles that they ever publish. That's great. And I know a lot of you want to help your husbands grow spiritually, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are ways that aren't going to work. I know you mean well, and I know your intentions are good, that you're trying to help him. But you need to understand that constant criticism and constant nagging and constantly pointing out where he fails, it's not going to help your husband grow spiritually. In fact, it's going to push him in to the recliner, or at least make it hard for him to get out of the recliner. You know, sometimes I have people come into my office and couples and the scenarios might go like this sometimes. Well, he needs to man up and he doesn't do anything around the house and he doesn't ever help the kids. And then she'll like catch her breath and reload it. And, and you want to see our finances. He's totally wrecked our finances and he just doesn't do anything. Do you, I don't even know the last time he's taken me on a date. And I'm thinking, wonder why. <laughs> Right? Wonder why he hasn't taken you on a date. Can't imagine. And as good as your intentions may be, just know that, that the constant criticism clips a man's wings. It slashes the tires of his leadership. Constant criticism without a culture of encouragement. You're just pushing that man back down. The Bible says over in Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome woman. Do I get any amens on that? Just nervous laughter, right? Want your wife like... <laughs> and you wonder sometimes why a man comes home or, and, and immediately watches TV or why he always comes home late or why the kids go to bed and he gets over on his computer and just kind of stays over there. Well, he's on his corner of the roof, so to speak, sometimes. So ladies, I just want to say to you, don't underestimate your words. Don't underestimate what words of encouragement do for your man. Your man is not going to tell you he needs that. We're just, guys, just, we just don't want to admit that. But I can tell you, we flourish when our wives encourage us. Remember our Kind Words Are Cool series that we just wrapped up? Remember James chapter 3? It says, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing by brothers and sisters. This should not be. Can fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? With your words, you can breathe life into your husband's soul. Or you can tear it apart and destroy it. But guys, listen. Let me be clear. You need to be responsible. It's not right even if your wife is critical of you every day, that doesn't give you the right to stay in the recliner. You cannot use your wife as an excuse to not be the man that God wants you to be. Let's go back to where we started this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. God is calling out to Adam, and he says this, Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Notice, he didn't call out to the woman, he wasn't looking for the man and the woman. He was calling out 
the man. He's looking for the man to take responsibility. So that's the challenge I have for you today, to have the courage to stand up and take responsibility. And I'm not trying to scare you, but one day we're all going to stand before God. And God is not going to ask you about your handicap score. He's not going to give you a, a quiz and sports trivia. He's not going to ask you about your fantasy football team. He's not going to ask you about your resume or your portfolio. He's not going to ask you what your high score was in Call of Duty. That's not what he's going to ask about. He's going to ask about your spiritual status. And he's going to ask you about how you shepherded your family. So Adam answers to God. We go on and we read here when God kind of takes him to task in verse 11. God says to Abraham, I mean Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Verse 12, we see Adam's response. The man said, Adam said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's that woman's fault. God, you put that woman here. It's her fault. You're the one who put her here. So the third thing this morning, Adam blames his wife for his failure. He was there. He could have done something. He could have stomped the head of that snake. He could have said something. Hey, he's feeding you a bunch of lies. But he didn't do anything. And then when God confronts him, it's her fault. I didn't know. God, maybe we're like that. How do you understand what it's like to live with her? I mean, God, you'd stay in a recliner too if you were me. And we blame it on somebody else. We blame it on the woman. We point the finger. We complain. It's her fault. Being a man means having the courage to take responsibility. Take responsibility, even if you've inherited some of the mess. Maybe you don't even have control over her. You don't have control over how she's going to respond or how your kids are going to respond. Doesn't matter. Take the responsibility like God asked you to do and let him worry about the rest. I'm not saying that's easy to do. It does take a lot of courage. It takes a lot of humility. And here's something else Adam did that I think we do too. Kind of wrapping things up. Before Adam blames his wife and before God takes him to pass, we read verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from God among the trees. I think we do that a lot. We don't want to take responsibility, so we blame somebody else. We hide in the trees. We run from one tree to the next. Whatever the activity is, whatever we can use as a distraction. We just hide in the trees rather than taking responsibility and accepting the truth. Maybe you don't want to be here today. You're hiding in the trees. I understand that. I get that. Believe it or not, there are Sundays I don't want to be up here either. I want to preach some Sundays. That happens. But my challenge to you today is to have the courage to stand up, be humble, and accept responsibility. Pastor, you don't understand. I failed too long. I mean, I, 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 just, I just can't do it. You can do it with God's help. You don't understand. My kids, they just wear me out, and I'm just, I'm just tired of fighting the battle. 
as a leader of the home, stand up, have the courage to take responsibility. Well, you know, I've been here for years and I've never served anywhere. And if I start now, people might start wondering. That's okay. Let them wonder. You're doing what God wants you to do. You know, if I start standing up and being courageous now, my wife's going to think I'm on drugs or something. <laughs> That's okay. She'll love you for it. And she'll be happy. Stand up and have the courage to be a man. Would you pray with me?